right, all right, all right. And yes, indeed, that is a hint who our guest today is. Before I get to the guest, I want to welcome you to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. You know the show and you know me. I like to sit down here with amazing humans and do everything I can to unpack their brain and help you be your most awesome, badass self. Today is going to deliver big time on that because my guest is Academy Award winning actor Matthew McConaughey. That's right. Matthew McConaughey is in the house. Uh, you probably know him from the screen, of course, but I want you to know he is a married man. He's a father of three, a loyal son and brother. Of course, you've seen him uh, accepting that Academy Award probably for Dallas Buyers Club, uh, but he's also in so many great films, Interstellar, Dazed and Confused, Contact, The Wolf of Wall Street, True Detective, and many, many more. He is a storyteller by occupation. That's his own words. I like to think of him as a bit of a rebel. He is a rebel with just a gentleman side. Uh, in his own words, he also believes it's okay to have a beer on the way to the temple, which I could not agree more to. In 2009, Matthew and his wife, Camilla, they founded a cool foundation called the Just Keep Living Foundation. That was in the wake of Matthew's father passing and, and Matthew's realization that that's really what life is about. It's just continuing to live. I like to think that we have come to have a good relationship, you and me, here with this podcast. And of all of the guests that we've had on the show there is a, a constant theme which I, I watch people struggle to sort of dance with, and that is the relationship between getting good at your craft and knowing who you are and then your ability to trust your intuition. When is your intuition right? Uh, when should you double down on your skills and your craft? And Matthew talks about the not obvious, sort of complicated, but cool relationship between those two things. I think it is magic, his answer. Um, we also, of course, cover his uh, his creative process, which is something I like to dig in with every guest, um, from film to writing books. He's, this is a memoir I just came out with called Green Lights, which is, I absolutely recommend. It is, um, it's, it's a page turner um, and his uh, self-proclaimed storyteller as occupation really comes through here. Um, his book is an unconventional memoir. It's filled with all kinds of stories, raucous stories, as he says, outlaw wisdom and a ton of lessons learned the hard way about living with greater fulfillment and satisfaction. One thing will become super clear when you listen to the show that Matthew McConaughey is a heartfelt, earnest, real person. Uh, and he is in this book and especially in our show today, uh, looking to add value. So if you have loved and lost, if you have uh, aspirations to create something bigger than yourself, if you are doing a job or have done a job that you weren't supposed to do and you're now currently living a job that you are so passionate about or you want to, this episode really delivers. Um, I can't wait for you to see uh, and or hear rather the side of Matthew McConaughey. I think I think it's a fantastic episode. Looking forward to hearing what you think. Give him a shout out or yours truly or both of us um, out there in the socials. We're listening and I want to say get ready for a ride with Matthew McConaughey. Before we do, just a super quick word from our sponsor and then we'll get into the show. Hey, before we get into today's episode, I've got something to share. Life isn't about finding fulfillment and success. It's about creating it. To that end, I've got a new book out, and it's called Creative Calling. It became an instant bestseller when it was released earlier this September. And for those of you listening to the podcast, if you dig this podcast, then this book is 
the perfect companion. I mean perfect. Because it takes the ideas we discuss here on the show and it organizes them. It takes my life of learning and studying creativity, talking to hundreds of the world's top creators in so many disciplines, and it organizes these ideas in a really clever and very practical way that I know will help you take action in pursuit of your dreams. So my ask is that you pick up a copy or two, or heck, 10. I'm not trying to be coy, but here's why. This is not about a transaction. This is about a message and a movement. You see, creativity is a force inside of every person such that when it's unleashed, it transforms our lives and delivers vitality to everything we do. It's my belief that establishing a daily practice around creativity is therefore our most valuable and urgent task. It's as important to our well-being as exercise and nutrition. Now, I've put everything I have into this book, everything. It's been 10 years in the making. Um, Just a couple words here from Richard Branson. He said, if you want to focus on creating amazing experiences, creating amazing businesses and relationships, Chase's book, Creative Calling, is an engaging guide to doing just that. Brene Brown said, Chase's experiences and his commitment to creating make him the perfect guide as we set out on our own adventures to learn how creativity has the power to change everything. Now, those reviews are just the tip of the iceberg, and you can read a couple hundred other five-star reviews on Amazon. But again, this isn't just about buying the book. It's about unleashing our most powerful force, our creativity. And I believe it's super important that as a community, we rally around ideas that we believe in. And so picking up a copy of Creative Calling, and more importantly, being a messenger for spreading this message, this is my ask of you. So thanks very much. And now let's get into today's show. Matthew McConaughey is in the house. Matthew, ready to roll? Let's rock, Chase. Good to be here, bud. Thanks. Welcome to the show. Congratulations on your book, by the way. I mean, uh, I've seen you do a lot of press around movies, man, and you have done such a good job of getting the word out there, and for good reason. It's it's an amazing story. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It feels good. I mean, it felt good to write it, um, but then it's getting a great result. It's getting received. It's translating. Um, so it's nice to see how it's been received, and a whole lot of fun to go out and talk about it with people, too. Well, I'll share that uh, I couldn't get one physically, like that you're doing such a good job. There aren't any <laughs> All right, Amazon, good. local bookstores out, Amazon sold out. Um, I had to read mine digitally. That's, that's no. a good sign. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the people who are watching and listening to the show and have been for now 10 years. Um, and by the way, so many of the, we, we were making some small talk earlier for those who were not there. Um, a lot of, uh, We've crossed paths with some similar folks, and uh, in large part, those folks are considered themselves creators and entrepreneurs, and of the people who have been listening to this show, watching this show for 10 years, that is a core piece of their identity. And uh, so I want to start off with your creative process. I think that's, you know, we're here to talk about the book, but I'm mostly interested in you as a human, and you've made an amazing uh, mark in the world, a dent in the universe, as Steve Jobs says. Uh, but so much of it has its roots in creativity. And I want to hear a little bit about your original draw to um, so many different creative crafts and uh, and how you think about uh, creativity in your daily life. Sure. Um, look, I, I, growing up, I mean, I guess I was creative when I look back in hindsight, but we were not, I didn't, I wasn't raised in like a creative family, meaning I was going to go to law school, be a lawyer. 
the, the idea when I called my dad and got the courage to call my dad and say, I want to switch from going to law school to film school was a nerve wracking night because the idea of going into the arts just sounded too avant-garde, uh, hippie dippy. And maybe that's a hobby for you, but that's not how a man goes to work and works his way up a company ladder and makes a living to my surprise. Um, he accepted more than accepted me wanting to go to film school and be a storyteller. He gave me a kick in the backside about doing it and said, don't half-ass it and loved the idea. Um, later on in life, after he passed away, we're going through the attic and I'm finding these sculptures and paintings and stuff and ask my mom, who did these? She goes, oh, that's your dad. He was doing those in the garage after y'all go to bed. So I was like, oh, oh, interesting. But we weren't big, like you weren't allowed to watch media in the family. You weren't even, we weren't even big readers. We were a family that was, hey, daylight outside, get your butt outside and do it. Mom would always say, don't watch somebody do something for you that you go do for yourself. So we were always really active um, and never took much time of introspection or like, oh, what's the story I'm going to tell? Or, or, or what's this piece of art? We didn't go to museums, that kind of thing. Um, and I guess after <clears throat> a year I had in Australia where I was estranged and on my own, I was forced to get creative to survive that time, meaning I was forced to get creative to maintain my sanity. Um, I was in a small little home in the middle of the, uh, in the middle of Australia, no friends, no money, no car and a curfew. And I was with a very odd family and I was losing my mind and I was having to create some very creative disciplines for myself just to have a measure of resistance to overcome each day to go, okay, my feet are on the ground. I did that. I ran six miles. I was a half-assed vegetarian. I continued to be celibate. Um, I was getting you know, very awkward ways of getting creative, but they helped me get, get me through that year. Um, then I got into, you know, I always considered I just was in the storytelling business, whether that was in front of the camera or behind the camera. It's like, you're, just, you're telling stories. And I go into acting, days confused, then all the way up through, shoot, from 92 to 98, my first six years of acting, I didn't know technically what the heck I was doing. I evidently had some instincts for it, but I did that, became very famous off of a film, Time to Kill, which then was another challenge to creativity because all of a sudden you're going, you know, yesterday I couldn't do any of these scripts I want to do. And now you're telling me I can do all thousand of them. And you want me to be discerning and creative and ask myself <laughs> what it means to me and my soul, what I want to do. Shit, man, I would have done any of these two days ago and I want to do all of them. Um, and so then I, I met with the lady, Penny Allen, um, who I worked with for 19 years, who's since passed away. And that's when I learned what my craft was. That's when I learned my rights as an actor. That's when I learned how to look at a script, how to break down a character, how to find needs, obstacles, how to overcome them in the script. Um, that's how I learned to break down story as well. Um, and then I think the process for me has always been, I want to close those gaps between there is what we want to do. There's actually what we do do. There's what actually gets recorded. And then there's actually what gets exhibited. So there's four filters there. And I would yeah. notice there was always a gap. And when I've been, I think when I've been the, 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 the better form of whatever artist I am, those gaps are tight and tighter. And I think, you know, it's part of the reason I wanted to go write the book. I want to get rid of some of those filters. I want to do it. I, I, when I go act, I do someone else's script. I, I'm directed by someone else. I'm lensed in a camera by someone else. I'm edited by someone else. Before that, my initial raw expression gets handed in a capsule to you to watch on the screen. Now, a book gets rid of three of those filters, but it keeps one. 
It's a written word, you know. Um, this is the filterless that we're doing right now. You know, this, this is the, this is kind of what really excites me the most, and how you know how to how, how to be an artist in this form and in life every day in this in this scene that we're in that you know action was called one time the day we were born and cut will be called one time the day we die. That's kind of right now what I'm getting off to. I've also must say this, I've gone through a period at first period of my life in acting and, 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 and whatever art it was, I was very much into the details. I've always been a studier, a preparer, get down to the details, details. The last 15 years of my career and the way I've seen life, I'm really coming to respect the impression fuzzy you know we talked earlier offline i don't want i don't want that high definition camera on everything i, I, I want to see the fuzzy it's like it's more like music then it's not telling me every detail let me paint the picture let me let me you know that that you know some people we see in life and art we see in life they, they, they will never look better than they did when they turn the corner at magic hour from 60 yards away and as you get closer you go oh no geez i liked it back there <laughs> you know what I mean? But that uh, the impression that I've, has allowed me to use my imagination more. So the impression in, in, uh, of things is what I've really been enjoying. Not going further, just letting the come into my imagination sooner um, rather than going in and getting all the details or learning to go get the details and go, no, you know what? I'm going to go back and just work off that impression. I love, love that for so many reasons not the least of which, but one that really caught my attention and I want to revisit just for a second is the, there's the craft and then there's almost the intuition and there's a craft of filmmaking, of acting, of writing, of uh, playing music, of all of the different sort of disciplines that you mentioned. And so many people tend to over-index on that. But one of the things that I loved uh, about, you know, learning more about you in preparation for this was your sort of weaving in and out of craft and intuition. Early on, it was all intuition. And then you bounced into craft. And, and it seemed like that has happened with so many different things, even, um, you know, writing your book. And, you know, it, I'm wondering if you can expand on this idea of intuition. Your, your book, it's like, it's like a I think you called it a rodeo in the beginning, and it's, it's given you a bunch of scars, <laughs> something like that. But this you know, talk to me a little bit about how to trust your intuition, because most people out there, and again, you know, this, the people who listen and watch this show have for 10 years, they consider themselves creators and entrepreneurs and fire starters. And yet so many people just run to the craft because it's easy. You can pick up a camera, camera has settings, you can press a button, you can get a better camera. And there's a fear of the soft stuff What you just talked about, which really captured my, my heart for a moment that was the fuzzy. And how do you learn to trust fuzzy? Because it seems to me that's where all the best shit in your life has come from, the fuzzy. Yeah, I think so. Now, I must say, you know, the non-fuzzy, the definition, the I know it, the arrogance of that has put me in many a playing field where things got fuzzy real quick when I didn't <laughs> think they were going <laughs> to, which gave me the gift of that. So. You know, I know in writing the book, I, there were times I looked at that places where I was an arrogant prick, but I look back, I was like, oh, I'm so glad you were an arrogant prick. I missed your know-it-all, an absolute definition of the situation because it gave you the courage to put yourself in a place where things got fuzzy and then you actually learned you saw things a different way, which I wouldn't have had that courage to put myself in places if I wasn't in that place of definition, right? Um, you know, craft intuition is, is what you, it seems to be the, <laughs> the constant dance between the two. 
just as it's a dance between responsibility and fate, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, responsibility and freedom. When do we, I'm gone between this. Sometimes I'll write the headline first. Write the freaking headline, put the stake in the stand out there in the sand and then just live the story towards that. Or before doing a film, sitting down with producers, directors, what's the poster look like? Well, it's a close up of your silhouette, right? Okay, this is going to be a character piece. It's going to really follow my character. No, it's a wide shot, you know, and, and these silhouettes are coming over the hill and it's big, wide, you know, 70 millimeter. Oh, okay, this is more of an epic story driven story. Just as an, just as a, it's what I mean when I say I want my direction, north, south, east, or west, and then give me 16 lanes to, to swerve in. But let's just make sure that we're, we're all heading in a general direction. Before I get started, I'm always like, okay, I don't want to know the details of exactly everything we're making here, but what album are we making? Is it rock and roll? Is it country? Is it jazz? I mean, can we at least say that? I just want to know what kind of album I'm playing on um, as a character, even when I go act, not even literally in music. Um, but other times... I won't write the headline. And I look in my book, I think a lot of my, and you said it in the question, a lot of stuff that I think um, that, that, that has art that maybe I've created that has been most true to me are when I jumped off the cliff and figured out the headline on the, wrote the story towards the headline. The headline was written when I landed or learned to fly, you know? And so on um, one side, I'm very much a perfectionist. I love to be in the know. I love to know what I want and get what I want. And on the other side, trusting that thing to go jump off and go, I'm going in this. I'm diving in this proverbial pool and I don't know how I'm going to get across it, but I'm going to trust that I'll come up on the other side. That's been the, probably the biggest buzzes that I've had as an artist. Um, but it's a, I mean, for me, is I think it's been a continual dance between those two. Because yeah. if I've, I've always been a guy who, to this day, I don't put anything in drawers. I need to see it. Okay. No and nothing no in drawers. drawers. No, no drawers. Because I'll forget about it. What do you put your forks? They're there <laughs> in a cabinet, but the cabinet's one of those big graded steel grates that you can see through with inches. No way. Yeah. I mean. Every plate, everything in our house. I, I have to see it. So I still do have that sort of uncomfortable feeling of wait, no, I gotta see it. I've always been the guy who if I have the key to the the door you know, to get from this room to that room, but I, but it's in there on the kitchen table. I'm going to leave this door cracked just so I, can, <laughs> so I can see that, you know? Now, I'm still learning to go, no, go ahead. Lock the door, dude. Trust that the key will work. <laughs> go ahead, shut the door. You don't know what's on the other side. Don't be afraid of the dark. And I've gotten, you know, I pulled some things off in that situation. But that's something I continually am still trying to work on. And it's, you know, becomes challenging in a way as we get older. We build things that we don't want to turn a blind eye to family. You know, there's certain things we build that I'm just not ready to go cover my eyes and go, yeah, let me just see what happens over there. You know, I have to tend to those things. I want those things in front of me, my children uh, and family and such. So, you know, it's a, it's a mix. One of the things I say in the book is create the weather. I like to create my weather so I can blow in the wind. That's the conservative early liberal late. But I've also realized that many times I've been liberal early conservative late, which means jump off the cliff, tell the story on the way down, figure out how to fly or when you land. And that will be the, find the headline in the, at the end of the story. How did you learn to trust that you would come up on the other side of the pool, that you would be able to figure a way to pop the parachute or land on your feet? 
seems to me that that's the part, you know, as I'm thinking about the questions that I always get about creative process or for myself or has been a regular theme in the show is where does that come from? Is that just, is that a, an accumulation of scars where you get enough licks that you recognize your, you have what it yeah. takes to come out the other side most of the time? It just occurs to me that this is right. Like most people, they're not taught to trust that we've got, you know, a very careful parent culture. And, and I mean, I, I, I used to leave my house in the morning and, you know, I used to have to be home at dark and that was when I was like 10 years old right. and it's different. And how do you learn to trust in, in sort of the culture that we're living in right now, which is uh, tenuous or hard or difficult or. That's a huge, great question. And has to do with a lot more than, than just art. It has to do with the art of living in relationships because we are in a time of great distrust right now. Um, but it is part of the creative process for me learning to trust. I, I know for a fact that learning my craft that 19 years with that lady, Penny Allen, gave me the courage to trust and say, put the blindfold on me and take me to Neptune, wherever you want to take me. And as soon as I step off the spaceship, be recording before you take the blindfold off. And I'm trusting that I'll be my man or, or I'll, I'll, I'll be true to my character as, as an actor. Um, but a lot of that confidence came from learning the craft, meaning preparation to come in to a scene, not with one truth, but with five truths. So the director can say anything to me. The other actor can do anything on the other side. I'm ready. I'm calling audibles. It's an instinct, you know, but it took years to get that because the intellectual process of learning your craft is actually you stumble. I went backwards. I was not as good of an actor when I first started taking acting lessons because I now became conscious of what the hell I was doing. And so it's up here in my head. You realize what you don't know, right? Yeah, I'm going, oh, it, 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 so I'm going to auditions and I'm not getting any of them. And I'm getting a call back, but I'm not getting any of them. And I'm like, what are you so tight about? Oh, you're thinking about it. And I always, I always like to take it to the analogy of sports as well. You get a new defensive coordinator on a team. You have pretty good time to bet against that team next year because that defense is out there thinking. And if they're thinking the wideout's already a half a step past them and then they're going to catch yeah. and run up the score. But if you can work the things from the head to the instincts and the gut where you're just in the moment calling audibles instinctually and able to dance. Now we're dancing right now. Yeah. We're playing. Now we're not working when it's up here. I find myself working. That's that seems like that's 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 the re required work that a lot of people don't want to do. That the the ability to trust yourself comes from the reps of the craft, letting that stuff fade into the background when you're operating a camera or on stage and you know at a play or anything. There's this you can. Is it fair to say that you've come to trust yourself because you put yourself in that position over and over and over, and you found out that you most of the time can, if not thrive, survive. And yep. if you don't survive, you get knocked on your ass. You can lick up, lick your wounds, and and get up again another day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hundred percent, hundred percent. That the learning and the preparation and the learning of the craft. So give confidence to me, and we'll give it to to other people to then, you know, let it come from the inside, and then it comes from the instincts out. I always look. I always grew up and pulled things off be out of sheer almost resilience. I mean, I, I've gotten away and pulled off creating to whatever extent you would call it art just because of, I love the dare of going, I think I can pull that off. Sometimes out of pure ignorance. Ignorance is bliss in a lot of ways, but things I didn't know. The, the, but I have nightmares about some of the things I got away with 
back when I didn't know that I wake up now going, huh, oh, geez. Or if I'd have known what I knew now, I wouldn't have pulled that situation off. I wouldn't have got away with it. You know what I mean? But oh, okay. yeah. I'm glad I didn't know then. I just, I just saw something. I don't remember where I saw it. It's like you start off and there's sort of a naive simplicity. And then you go into, I think this thing said functional complexity. This is the, you're learning a new defense. If you know, if you get a new defensive coordinator and what mastery looks like is sort of effortless simplicity. Again, it comes to trusting instincts and repetition. And I think that there was a, that seemed to be a theme, not just with your professional career, but with your family, with your friendships, with your going on these walkabouts, there seemed to be this yin and yang, uh, on and off, uh, ebb and flow. And I'm wondering if that's intentional for you. Well, in looking back, obviously it was intentional because yeah, I got we can all connect the dots pretty, looking backwards, right? I have a pretty good, a pretty good consistent track record of this sort of boomeranging out and going out or being in the middle flying. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden having the spider sense, the threshold go off early enough and listening to it to go, no, no, let's, let's, let's hop out of this. We need some solitude. I need some demarcation between the events and the circumstances that are happening to me in the day. I got to go get some prudence and see what the hell matters to me, what's true to me. So I've, I've practiced when I look back, I'm honored with how I had practiced going away to solitude at the right times. Um, many times, not every time, but many times, um, to get my, to my, get me, you know, get my head a heart aligned with my heart and spirit to get my feet on the ground. But still find that place where I was felt absolutely humble, the most humble, but absolutely the most powerful and the most creative. And I've battled that through my life. A lot of times, you know, one was my definition of humility. Um, I'd always didn't, you know, I used to be kind of falsely modest and that's a bunch of bullshit, you know? So then I heard this, uh, cool quote about humility being knowing, admitting that you have more to learn. Well, that one, I went, Oh, okay. I can still receive, I can have the humility to receive, but I can still stand up tall with my heart high and my head high and, 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 and engage and have an identity and have judgment and have discernment, um, but still be able to have the humility to receive things. And that, you know, is another way of saying what we're talking about. This reciprocity of the give and the receive and the putting out and are you putting out and is the world reverbing back to you what you're putting out? Again, is that gap closed? Yeah. How wide is that gap? between what we put out and what we receive. But boy, it's beautiful when that gap comes in lickety split, you know, yeah. like that. When it comes back with a large gap, you're going, what am I misreading? Did I misinterpret that? Did I communicate that the right way? Was it in the wrong place? Is my timing off? Am I not giving context or consideration to the entity or the person or the place or the art that I'm engaging with? And, you know, sometimes you can work out those relationships, recalibrate, but I found that those places to recalibrate um, and I'll harp this back to the, the, the book again. And this is very obvious when I say it, even though when I said it to myself for the first time a month ago, I thought, oh, wow, that's awesome. And I was like, well, kind of no shit, which is the more personal we get, the more relatable we are. Yeah. It, that, that seems to be the thing with, 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 with art or translation or communication. Um, and we, you know, so I see them sometimes that is a contradiction when in fact, no, it's not. And at the same time, I want to make sure this is clear because I, I also say, Hey, wait a minute. You know, what do you mean the more personally you get? What are you saying? So 
pure honesty is art? No, 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 no. If yeah. you, that were true, then a 12 year old girl's diary is as good as Shakespeare. And that's not true. So there's a difference between self-expression and art, but can your own self-expression be be formed instructed in a way of art? And it's the, and when it becomes art is when it's relatable to the we, where the I, I think that's the that gap that you're talking about. That's maybe that's authenticity. Maybe that like there's a resonance. Mm. I don't know. I think there's it's vulnerability, authenticity. There's something in that, yeah. like the Venn diagram of those two, maybe that that's the when the art feels the best when you there's this connection, and you know you you reference now the book, and for those who aren't <laughs> tuned into pop culture right now, the book that Matthew's talking about is Green Lights, which is your new book. Uh, it's probably a good time for me to say again, congratulations. It's incredible. It really is. I've I've read a lot of memoirs and. Uh, it, this doesn't feel like one, but uh, it is in, an, in, a, in a poetic and beautiful, um, heartfelt, earnest, playful, playful way. So congratulations. You, you created something beautiful and it was fun to see a different, uh, a different outlet from you. Fun to dive into a different outlet. Another means of communication. Again, like we talked about earlier, um, fewer filters. Um, you know, very it was a little bit of a freedom journey for me. I'm not one for looking back. I like to do things. Yep, that was done. Let's move on, move forward. But to go back and <clears throat> track my lineage to from zero to here, see, be surprised and go, the same stuff you were interested in at 14, you're still interested in. You know, oh, let's, let's have a look. Have your questions on the same subject evolved a little bit? Well, that's good. Okay, a little bit. But we're still waking up in the middle of the night, excited to write down the same things about the figure, trying to figure out the science of satisfaction and the art of living and what can, what relationships and how, what can, how are we responsible for the green lights we create in our life? How do we get lucky sometimes and, and how to keep our head up and own that good fortune and take advantage of it. And then how is it sometimes just about perspective of, coming across a yellow light and sometimes going, I'm not even going to give that son of a bitch credit. I ain't slowing down. I'm pressing the gas and blowing through that son of a bitch. And that's also another way to catch them, you know? And then I learned through the running of the book is that the hardships and the crises in my life that I would call metaphorically the red and yellow lights. Those have been the best. Those have been the best tools and teaching lessons that I've had. Those I'm, are, are, I'm quite sure I would not be here talking to you right now with the life I have. <clears throat> family I have unless I had those and I wouldn't give any of those back brilliant it um mutual friend of ours Tim Ferriss talked to Tim about journaling and uh for those who haven't read the book yet the the there's this intertwined relationship between the book that you are reading and the journals the journals that you had created and then the ones that you were creating when you went, say, to the desert, um, got the permission slip from, uh, step away from the family for a little bit and go out mm -hmm. on your own. I'm wondering, has that role of journaling, did, did that lead you to the book or did the book lead you back to your journals? And how important has writing things down been for your success, your introspection, <laughs> Uh, humility, how important has it been? Sure. Um, the journals led to the book. The journals, I always, uh, again, since I was 14, I'm, I've always been the guy that would 
hang on, it's before phones. So like, hang on, I gotta write, write something down. I don't have a pen. Can I borrow that Sharpie waitress or whoever? And I'd write it on my arm or write it on the napkin or on the beer coaster. Or then phones came along and I'll pull it out at a dinner party and I have to let the whole table know that, guys, I'm not writing anyone else. I'm here. I'm right, actually writing something and I'm write it down. And then I, I hand you the phone, Chase, and go, did I quote you right, Chase? Will you sign that? You go, yeah, that is what I said. And I go, great. Do you mind? I'll footnote you if I bring that up. But I think you just said something that I feel is applicable, that can scale out, that I want to test out on things in life and see if that reverb comes back to me in a like way, see if it kind of gratifies me. Um, so that's always been the stuff that's interested me and the stuff that I wrote down in journals. Um, I threatened to go write a book 15 years ago. I just didn't have the balls to do it. Um, you know, and my excuse was, oh, you know what, just keep, keep, keep living. Don't get retrospective and, and write anything down. And you know what, when you die, Camilla or some good friend will go back and look through those journals, maybe and if it's something worth sharing, let them do it postmortem. And that was really an excuse. But then about three years ago, I said, you know what, I'm going to, that treasure chest of journals was just, I always take it with me. It was staring at me and it started barking at me a little bit. So I said, okay, all right, I'm going to go away with you and see what you got. But I wasn't courageous enough to do it on my own. Got a ghostwriter. The ghostwriter and I meet one time for three hours. That afternoon, his boss for the New York Times pulls him off the project. He can't work on it. And right when that happened, as soon as I told my wife, I said, you know what? Stephen got pulled. I think I need to look for an... We both looked at each other and smiled and went, this is perfect. I got to go and do it. She was like, exactly. You got to go do it. So packed the stuff up, went to the desert to see what I had. Um, I did do this. I came into it thinking, oh, this is going to be very academic. No, maybe it's part of my ego. I don't know what it was. It was something that I was and this is going to be very academic. And I remember after four days of looking through my journals, I was like, I don't think That's... this is as academic as you think it is. <laughs> and at first I was let down and I was like, but you know what? It is more poetic. And I was like, well, that's cool. All right. That's more musical. I like that. And so I sat there and I, I, I went through these thousands of pages and stacked them in their categories. And the categories they fell into were stories, people, places, prescriptions, poems, prayers, and a whole lot of bumper stickers. And so I then looked through those and looked for the theme. And that's where the title Green Lights came up for the reasons that I was saying earlier. Um, and look, I found that I remembered more than I thought I forgot. I knew that I would be ashamed of certain things. I knew I'd be uh, um, embarrassed about certain things. I knew I would, as I said earlier, see myself as an arrogant prick at times. And I saw all three of those things and felt all those. But most of the stuff that I thought I would be embarrassed about, I laughed at. Most of the stuff I thought I'd be ashamed of, I'd either already forgiven myself for or forgave myself for in the, in the writing of it. And then those things where I was an arrogant little know-it-all prick, I was like, well, did you, that arrogance did put you in the ring and got you gained more out of that arrogance and learned that you were wrong and didn't, were not a know-it-all like you thought it were. And you got more things that you wanted. And at least that arrogance gave you the confidence to get in the game. Um, so yeah, it was a fun, it, overall it was fun, uh, fun writing process. I loved it. The hardest part was coming back to civilization and dealing with <laughs> other people. <laughs> The, the the process of pouring your heart out can be grueling. It could be exhilarating. And that's sort of, I, I feel like what you just walked us through, you got the full tour of your emotions and reconciliation. And was there anything that you, you didn't get that you wanted to? 
Well, to go back to the craft and intuition, I went in as a craftsman. I went in thinking, oh, I know what this is going to be. This is going to be a really academic book. It's going to be almost, I thought it was going to be almost more like self-help advice. Tactical. Yeah, tactical. And I love tactics. I love precision, as we were talking about earlier. But then the intuition is what revealed itself. And it became more poet. It became a poem rather than an academic tool. And so I didn't get what I initially went in thinking I was going to get and wanted to get. Um, But I came out with something that uh, uh, something that feels a little more magical and even more true and more relatable to the human experience. Well, that's the trust part, right? You, you trusted that you're going to come back with something. And sure enough, that repetition, the learning to trust yourself over and over. If you, if you didn't trust yourself, you'd probably still be writing. <laughs> you try, try and be writing that technical, you know, the, the how-to book. You're trying to force it, you know, the old square peg in the round hole. And, 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 and uh, I remember it hitting me early on and going just, and my, my wife gave me great advice when I left. She was like, remember when you leave, she was like, don't come, don't, don't come back. You don't even need to call me. Have a drink at 6 a.m. if you want one. Your rules need to be absolutely no rules. Well, when you're, you know, someone you care about and love gives you that amount of freedom. <laughs> yeah. Well, then every damn night at six o'clock, I climbed up on top of the mountain to get cell reception to call home. <laughs> <laughs> when she said, go ahead and have a drink at 6 a.m., then I would go days and not have a sip of anything because I was writing. You know, it was, it was full open to do. And I so I so I put away all the clock. I didn't know what time it was. I didn't give myself any measurement of day, night meals. I said, you just do what you want when you want. You eat when you want, you drink when you want, you sleep when you want, you write when you want. And it turned out to be the writing was the champion. And I was averaging 17 hours a day. And the hardest part was saying, hey, you got to get a little sleep here. You got to get a little bit of sleep here. And what an awesome, you know, challenge to have if you're going to go away and work on something is the challenge of saying, hey, I've got to set it down for a minute just because I got to get some rest. Having um, Camilla in your life, uh, makes me want to ask a question that, that the support that you just felt from her and, and, um, you know, the phrase you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, how important has that been in your life in successes and the failures? Um, you know, how do you choose who to spend your time with? And, you know, the, the book for, again, those who haven't read it, I highly, highly recommend it. It's just so many intertwined stories with you know family and parents and brothers and peers and agents and that that were really powerful and i'm wondering how intentionally you've been with the people you surround yourself with i think i've been very intentional um look i've got three kids and a family when you when that happens the first thing that goes is some of the friends don't have time to go right now Hey, Chase, want to go to Molly tomorrow? Let's put on a backpack. Let's go. No, doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. So, you know, the first few years after you have a, a, a first child, the friends are still calling, Hey, meet me down the phone. So I'm like, oh, man, I can't, I'm, I'm running around. We're doing homework, putting kids to bed. And tomorrow morning I got to go to the soccer deal at 6 a.m. No, 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 no. So they start to understand, um, uh, understand that, um, you know, uh, my favorite, Friends, I have a lot of male friends and what we do, 
and I love talking to them about it. We either get together in person or we will, sometimes we'll conference call or I really enjoy one-on-ones with them. And we talk about my favorite subject, how to be better people, how to be better men, how to be better fathers, how to be better husbands, how to be truer artists. Um, and I like hearing from, I like engaging with my male friends about those things and people that have succeeded in their own right that don't need anything from me. They're doing their own thing. They were, they were just fine before me. And luckily I was doing all right before I met them. Um, you know, and then there is immediate family, which is the non-negotiable thing yeah. in, in, in my life. And when I, what's beautiful about that is, you know, meeting Camilla and then us getting married, it was the first time where I was like, oh, okay. So if we, we fall down in the relationship, now you get up. <laughs> it's not the sign of, uh-oh, dun, 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 this is the sign of the incoming. You know what I mean? In previous relationships, something goes wrong, you stumble, you're like, uh-oh, this is a sign. Here we go. It's, it's going to be broken. But now with, with her, for who she is in my life and also through the bond of marriage, it's like, you, know, you stumble, you, you, you get back up. It's not over. And before that, I used to you know, feel that, oh, you stumble. Well, it's, this is the sign of on the way to it ending. And a lot of times it was true. Um, so to have that security now, also that my family and having children immediately became number one, which put career or, or my art in number, number in the second spot. So scary again, let's go back to trust. Oh shit. Yeah. It's number two. I'm not going to be as good at it. I'm not gonna be as true at it, but actually I became much more true at it. And much more, a better communicator through my art when it became number two. One, because my work ethic was already good. I mean, you can't tell everyone to make it number two because some people yeah. just go, well, okay, I don't need to do anything. My work ethic was already there. I was already, you know, on it, chasing it, prepared, did the work, seeked it all the time. But because it became number two, there's pressure that came off of it. It sort of it opened up the lid on on it and gave, I took, I've become, I've taken more risks, got more courage because. If that fails, I know it's not the end of me. I got my non-negotiable thing, my family, that I'm taking care of. If that's in good spot and I don't have to look over my proverbial shoulder when I go onto the set or go away to write or whatever, then I'm just ferocious at those times when I'm working yeah. or when I'm creating because of that security I have of that non-negotiable aspect of my life, which is my family. More ferocious than I used to be before. <laughs> Well, the risk risk is an interesting topic. It's something I I made. I've got some notes here that I I made when I was reading, and there's a point in the book I think that uh, you're like dry on auditions for like six months, and I think it was actually after you'd had some success, and you know it's classic like sophomore slump probably, right? You have some success, and I I think if I'm remembering it correctly, you attribute that dry spell to not taking the same risks that you did early on, almost when it was that sort of like that neophyte don't have the skills. What, what did I say earlier? Uh, like just bl blissful simplicity. And then you start getting your head sort of the functional complexity kicks in. So what did you realize that risk was, you know, when you, when you acknowledge that you weren't dry because you weren't doing the stuff that got you the gigs in the first place, did it, was it immediately did you shift gears and, and start 
doing the things that made Matthew Matthew or, or how did you approach that? No, I actually became the arrogant prick I was talking about earlier and said, like, I'm going to change this. I'm going, I'm going to go another way. And it was a very awkward move. But again, it was one of those arrogant prick moves that put me in the game to absolutely embarrass the snot out of myself, which then woke me up to go, oh, okay, now I get it. And I'll tell you the story because it's a funny one. Um, there was about six months where I had now become a little conscious of what I was doing. Now hopping out in the jumbotron and the third eye and, and the third person and having to look at myself where before everything was just subjective. Man, I'm on press record. I'm, I'm, I've got natural ability. You want me to be in the scene? Yeah, come be in this scene. There's no lines written. I don't care. Well, all of a sudden I get a little conscious of what I'm doing. And there's that, we talked about that period where you get a little heady. It takes a while. You kind of stumble around before it gets to your instinct. Well, I was going to audition to get a first callback, second callback, but not a third. I don't get called. It was going on. I'm like, dang it. Every time you're leaving these auditions, you're driving down the road going, damn it. You were tight. You only gave 90%. You didn't, you didn't, you, you had the moment. And you, and, you, and you contextualize the moment. You should have just done it. And I said, and all of a sudden I get this blind offer on a job. This movie called Scorpion Spring. It's an independent movie. I'm supposed to come in for one day's work. They write the byline. There's this drug, drug runner on the South Texas border. The coyotes are coming over with this, with this cocaine. You're supposed to pay them for it. But instead of paying them for it, you, you, know, you shoot them dead and steal the cocaine and steal it and come across. El Rojo is my name okay so i get this bright idea it's very arrogant bright idea hey man you got to go back to how you did it in the beginning the days confused when you didn't know what you were doing and you had the instincts for it and you had three lines but you worked for three weeks you just knew your man you just acted like your man forget lines forget what the scenes about you know so i say bright idea matthew i'm not even going to read the script i'm not even going to read the scene that i'm in I'm going to know my man, that man, El Rojo, who does that. What would that man do? And that's what I'll do. That's what I'll say to get what I want. So. <laughs> you already know where this is going. <laughs> I show up on set that day. I've got my leather jacket on. I got a cowboy hat on. I got some greasy jeans. I'm El Rojo. I know what I want in this. I want the cocaine. And I'll kill them to get it. And I'll buy whatever means. I don't care what they do. I'll just do what I need to do to do that, to get away with that. So. I'm standing on my mark about to shoot this scene, which I have not looked at. And the, 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 one of the uh, uh, PAs comes by and goes, uh, Miss McConaughey, would you like some sides? And sides are that little small version of what the scene is. And I guess I'm feeling, starting to feel a little anxious and maybe a little insecure in my plan because I said, yeah, let me have a look at those. <laughs> so I'm on my mark and I get the scene in my mind. I'm telling myself, well, you can have a look at the scene. Rojo, because if it's written well, obviously that's what you'd say and we're going to say anyway. And if it's not written well, just say what you would say and just be your man. But have a little peek. I look at him. Page one. <clears throat> page two. Page three. Page four. Um, can I get a, uh, um, can I get 12 minutes? Now, why did I think I needed 12 minutes? Because there's a four-page monologue by El Rojo in Spanish. <laughs> uh, 
So this bead of sweat comes up on the back of my neck. And I remember, can I get 12 minutes? Which in my mind, I remember very, very distinctly. In my mind, that was like, oh, not enough time to inconvenience the crew who was ready to shoot the scene. But enough time to maybe learn four pages of monologue in Spanish. Because, hey, I took Spanish one semester in the 11th grade. (laughs) Well, I was right on one of the accounts. It really didn't inconvenience the crew that much. But it was not enough time to learn four pages in Spanish. And I came back and did the scene. I've never watched the movie, Too Embarrassed To. But from that moment, I went, oh, 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 okay, okay. No, you have to prepare to have the freedom. You have to you have conservative early to be liberal. Like you have to know your craft, understand it by every angle possible so you can come in and forget it all. And I started taking a lot more risk at that point, led to a meeting with Joel Schumacher on a time to kill. Um, I went in to meet him for another role, a much smaller role in the movie. But before that meeting, I not only read the script and the scenes and every character in the movie, I read the book and was quite clear that what I wanted was the lead role of Jake Brigantz and went into that meeting looking for saying, wait for a moment to let him know that. And we got in that meeting. I remember I was, I was smoking cigarettes at the time. I had a sleeveless John Mellencamp t-shirt on. And I'm sitting back and we had just gone through all the reasons that I was right for this other role of Freddie Lee Cobb. The, the conversation settles a second. Smoke a cigarette. I go, so who's playing the, uh, the lead of Jake Brigance? And he goes, you know, I, I don't know. Who do you think should? And I remember I went, I think I should. And he goes, ah, that's a great idea, but it's never going to happen. You're kind of an unknown and the studio needs a name. Da, 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 da. Well, not to go through the story of how many things went my way, but I ended up getting a screen test for that and got the role. But that was because of the embarrassment that I felt of sitting out there, not knowing my scene and not knowing my man and my character on that film Scorpion Spring that I got so prepared for the next meeting and have been since that I come in majorly prepared so I can maybe pull off a little spot in the middle of a conversation and throw my name in the hat and have the confidence to go, well, no, I think I should. If I wouldn't have been prepared on that, he, I, I was ready to answer any question Joel Schumacher would have had of me about the character of Jake Brigance. I was ready. I could have talked to him for 30 minutes about who Jake Brigance was because I read the book, because I read the script, because I was came in loaded. Um, so that arrogant little ignorant move <laughs> of, hey, I won't read the script. I won't read the scene. I'll just do what my man would do. The clumsiness of that lesson is what spurred me on to taking a lot more of the risk that I've taken since. And many of them have paid off. It clearly has been, uh, it's worked for you. And another thing that emerges in the book um, that seems to have worked is the idea of the walkabout. Now, we already talked, uh, Camilla gave you the sort of the green light to go away and do do the work that you need to do in this particular chapter, write this particular book, pun intended. And yet, if you look backwards, which is, as you said earlier, how we connect the dots, there have been many walkabouts. There was a walkabout, ostensibly a walkabout in Australia, Uh, you've, you know, Southeast Asia, these, these walkabouts that have seemed to be like a fixture in your life, like a drumbeat, is that hiding or is that seeking? Is it, how important 
is it? And uh, how, okay. how important do you think it is for, for all people? Is it just Matthew McConaughey or is, is it everybody? What's the role of I the walkabout? I think it's incredibly valuable for anybody. And look, not everybody, as we said earlier, can say, okay, I'm going to throw in a backpack and go on a 22-day walkabout in Peru or Mali or Southeast Asia. I get that. I still have to work today, every day. Can I get an hour, whether that's a, a break in a sweat, whether that is starting the day off with myself to do a little inventory of what my day is and how I'm feeling uh, and how I want to approach it. Um, going around and making sure that I'm good with good morning to each child and my mother and my wife first before I go hop out of the bed and want to engage in my work, which I can't wait to do. Don't go check out all those things. So. So if you, if you, if you, if I'm on the, if, if I'm right with my family early off to start the day before I go to work, I'm not coming out at lunch and they're going, Oh, hi. Well, good morning. And all of a sudden that's the start of a little bit of tension. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's constant check-ins, but those are, I always, is it hiding? Sure. It's a, it was a bit hiding, but I made sure to go, look, I'm not a big fan of running away from anything until I know what I want to run to. I'm always going to look, what's the affirmative? Uh, um, I don't want to regress or step back unless it's something I'm going to. And, you know, it's the, it's the old, how, when, when people speak, it's like, don't use the double negative. Just use, use, the, use the affirmative that affirms the opposite of the, of, of the, of the negative. Um, so those were times for me where one was forced on me uh the year in australia i decided i want to go away that that was crazy by the way all that, that pretty was, crazy that was crazy man. Just straight up you gotta read the book i mean you should go into a little you can go into a little bit but i don't know how you weathered that man i don't know sorry i didn't interrupt that it was a it was a forced winter yes um of insanity um uh and one that I'm quite sure I wouldn't be sitting here right now if I didn't have that year. But other ones were, were conscious to me. I mean, I get famous in Hollywood over one weekend. That movie, A Time to Kill, comes out. The world's a mirror to me. I'm not meeting strangers anymore. Everyone has a bio on me. Everyone says, oh, I love you. I love you. I'm going, wait a minute. I've said that to four people in my life. Whoa, here's do any of these scripts. Wait a minute, two days ago, you wouldn't let me do any of them. And I would have done all of them if I could, or I would have done any of them. Now you're saying, yes, any of them. Give me some discernment here. Wait, what matters? What really, what's, uh, I got to get the hell out of Dodge. I got to go hear myself think. And so, you know, fortunately had a specific dream that kept recurring in my life that gave me sort of the impetus to go, oh, you got to go chase that dream. And one of those was particularly to the Amazon in Peru. And I was looking, and I was looking for a Fugamundi. I was looking for a walkabout. I just need to have a reason to chase it. And, you know, the first 12 days, my, in my experience, those walkabouts, when I need them, the first 12 days are absolute hell. I do not like my company. I cannot stand my thoughts. Um, I, I'm not present. I'm not sleeping well. I'm, I'm, I'm clumsy. I'm, I'm, you know, talk about tripping yourself running downhill. Things can be going well. I'm looking for, I'm creating resistance to feel, you know, and, 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 and bleeding at times, you know, so. And then after about 12 days, after, you know, each one of those has had a night that are usually around day 12, day 13, that I'll have a purge that I'll 
strip every talisman that I'm about, uh, whether it's a, you know, a family name or an American ball cap or anything to do with any of the newfound fame or anything that has to do with an occupation. Forget artist, forget actor, whatever, who, who, who let's crack it all down. I'm a child, I'm, I'm, I'm not even a man, not even sexuality. Break it down to my version, what's called a child of God, a, a mammal. Let's break it down to there, buck naked, literally and perversely, and go, okay. And guess what, McConaughey? You're the only son of a bitch I can't get rid of. <laughs> I'm stuck with you. So we got to figure this out. Let's shake hands on some things. Let's forgive ourselves for what we should forgive ourselves for, because you're being a little arrogant and how guilty you're feeling about some things. Yeah, let's forgive you for that. And let's say the buck stops here on some other shit you're letting yourself get away with. Enough. Quit letting that slide. We're not going back into the world and reintegrating back into the world and letting ourselves slide on that. And all of a sudden at that point, I wake up the next morning and I'm light as a feather. And people around me who don't even speak the language are telling me, la luz, la luz, you are so light. And all of a sudden, then the journey is the seeking. Then the journey is I'm finding out, we're seeing beauty, seeing poetry in the world, my reaction with it, my relationships with people, everything, my sense of humor, my wink comes back. And then those journeys are beautiful, but they wouldn't have been that unless I went through the first 12 days. Um, I just knew at those times that I needed them, that I, that I, that I, I needed to cut the chafe off, that the frequent, I had too much frequency coming out. And we have so much frequency coming at us today. How do we go so fast we hear ourselves think in the middle of the noise? I mean, we can't, you know, we can't just all go, well, I'm going to go become a monk later. It's a, it's a lovely idea, but it's quite a privileged one. If you, if you can pull it yeah. off, you know, yeah. so how do we, how do we, how do we, how do we find that in the daily dance? Um, you know, how, when times when I feel myself kind of leaning into conversations or intruding or wanting to interrupt or already thinking about what my answer is to someone's question or, or what my take is on a certain topic. I'm like, Whoa, you're, you're a little, you're a little lean, you're a little fast forward right now. Why are you racing against time? kind of hey, let time come to you sit back. You know, the times when I'm happiest and usually are those proverbial walkabouts or better daily maintenance of them in my daily life without having to go away for 20 days, 22 days is, and I do this every day. And so it's a really good measure um, through the day. Don't wear a watch, but just guess what time it is. And if when I'm when I know I need to take some time off, whether that's a walkabout or a daily maintenance or church on a Sunday is when I go. Ah, it's 430. And it turns out to be 3.02. And I'm going, whoa, you better slow down, son. You're an hour and a half ahead of natural time. When I am, I would say the happiest is when I go, I bet you it's 4.46. And I look at the clock and it's 4.44. I'm sorry, no, 4.48. I'm two minutes like behind. I'm just on the back, like a, like a good drummer in a rock and roll band, just on the back side of the wave, just on the back side of the beat. That's when I'm like the most happy when I'm slightly behind time or I'm on it. I love being on time, but like being slightly behind it and feeling like that. So I'm like, that's right. Time is on my side. I'm going to dance in with it. Don't be in a rush to, to, to race to the red light. You know what I mean? 
um, which happens so much racing to the red light. You get there and you go, oh, I rushed and I got here and now what? Oh, why didn't I just enjoy the drive getting there? And I would have got the same amount done. <laughs> and actually I would have enjoyed the doing of it more. It's very insightful. There's this element that you're, when you're talking about, it's sort of like coming home. You, we go away, whether it's on a walkabout or in our own mind, we're being distracted by all the stuff. You talked about it for the first few days of your walkabout and then you you've come home. I also found there's a really, there's a really interesting recurring theme. It seems like now that I know a little bit more in your life, but also in the book, like you've talked about home as permanent or Texas, but it's also temporary, right? You've, you already mentioned five or six locations around the world, Colorado for a while. You've had PO boxes, your Airstream. I'm wondering what role home plays for you. Yeah, good question, and 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 one that I've I've thought a lot about, and not thought a lot about, but noticed how I felt about it. And looking looking back, um, my goal, my headline that I try to achieve that I've noticed gives me great satisfaction or when I am happiest or most joyful or most myself in my life is when I'm home in the world. Yeah. The, I, I write about one in the book I call, you know, give a place the justice it deserves. I, love the challenge and it has proved to be a, a, one that that has been fulfilling and true to go any place you travel to even if it's on your own property or another side of that house or across the globe if i can stay there until i go ah this could be me this could be my existence i could do this forever then and only then do I believe it's okay to leave? Because if I didn't get to that point, I didn't give the place or the person or the time, the justice it truly deserved. Now it takes longer sometimes. Sometimes I can feel at home in 30 seconds someplace. Oh, I got, I could do this forever. Sometimes it yeah. takes that 12 days I was talking about. Sometimes it takes 20 days. And then only after, sometimes it takes a month. Some time I'm still working on, you know, um, but to 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 feel like at home wherever I am in the world, the you know I my identity you know is sure I'm. Then that goes to what's negotiable, and what's not negotiable, and then goes into the permanence and impermanence of uh, of things. I mean, look, I did a film Contact, and it was about the, the the challenge of God and science, belief in science, and what I got from that and talking with like Carl Sagan and and being in that movie was like oh. God's backyard's a lot bigger than I thought. <laughs> so when I look at the, I like to look at life in the world we're living in, the earth from the, the proverbial Google map and go, oh, look, it's all just one big backyard. And it's got puddles here and a little river here. We call them an ocean or whatever, but it's all just a backyard and there's different colors and there's different things. But essentially, if you're there long enough, you end up seeing that all everyone really wants is something to look forward to wake up in the morning, no matter what the socioeconomic scale is or what have you. And, and, and they want a little community if they can get it. Um, so home has felt, if I, I haven't felt at home everywhere, but there's places that I haven't felt at home that I still need to return to because maybe it was me 
who I was at that time that couldn't feel home there and couldn't give that place the justice because maybe I didn't wasn't respecting that place enough because I wasn't respecting myself enough at that time. And I need I I want to return to him because I'm going to go like I still have a bad taste in my mouth about that place. Now the challenge with that can be I don't want to be foolish and go looking for trouble. You know what I mean? I write in the book. I you know I'm, I love kissing the fire and walking away whistling, but I don't want to go. I always say this, it's okay to have a point to prove, but don't keep trying to prove a point. You know what I mean? We don't, that, that, I'm not saying go to those places where, you know, you're in the devil's den and go, I can overcome this thing. I can make this beautiful and I can make this utopia. No, no hang on. There's certain fights we shouldn't just pick, you know, but I mean, picking out ones that it really wasn't uh, a downfall to be there. It really wasn't a, a, a downside or debt wasn't bringing out the debit section and who I was, but maybe I just didn't see it. I didn't give it the justice it deserved. And I still have some of those places to return to. But let me go back to this. Traveling those places, like the going in the writing, as I said earlier, when I don't have to look over my shoulder because my wife has said, go, I've got everything handled here. Don't go back. That allows me to feel at home. If I didn't have the assurance of the non-negotiable bond that my my wife and I have, my family's taken care of, I'm not going to give the place the justice it deserves because I can't completely be there and be engaged in it. It's that that is so insightful, and I have to then ground it in roles like Ron Woodward. Like, do, is that an escape? Is that a go away, or is that a go home? Is that a thing that you feel like you can connect with, or you can go there? Let's which go is a, yeah, it's like complete transformation for you, right? Like, I don't know how much weight you lost, um, but that was uh, the role for which you won the Academy Award. Is, that's a home. That's can home. Go? That's coming home. I mean, you know, people all people say about the the work that that actors do, and I'd say it can be true for any kind of art. Where they go, oh wow, you were able to so step outside of yourself and become someone else. I'm like, no, 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 no. When I've done maybe decent work or not so good work, that's what it was. It was other than I was objectifying the situation, the person, or trying to imitate, but. When we do really good work, I know for me, when I do the truest work, no, I'm more me. We got everybody in us. Each one of us has everybody in us. I look at it like that 70s equalizer, man. You're just going to fine tune. Well, I'm going to turn up the HKZs, the 500s, because on the treble side of this side of myself, and I'm going to turn down the lower bass lines because that side of myself maybe is not uh, who this character is, not who this character is. So it's that character coming through the vessel of me as the actor, but I'm just recalibrating my equalizer for that part in me. Um, you know, uh, uh, Ron Woodruff, that was, you know, the perfectionist side of me. Boy, let's turn that up. This guy was a clinical clinician, the side of me that's like survivor, underdog. And what's the ultimate thing, the ultimate cost? Life. Oh, if I don't pull this off as a businessman, I die? Uh-uh. So am I not fighting not to die? Again, to use the affirmative instead of the negative. No, I'm going to fight to live. Do whatever it takes by hook or by crook. No rules of the world are on that character. Uh-uh. He's a, he's a hustler, man. He's going to do whatever he can to stay alive. Lie, cheat, steal. And in the, way, and in the meantime actually be doing an altruistic thing but don't play the altruism don't play that it was a help don't play the guy the guy was not a carry the white flag everyone come marching behind me 
we need rights for he wasn't that guy he was trying to survive on his own and through that selfishness his humanity came out and there came the i meets the we through his the more selfish i got with him the more his humanity came out and you said oh this guy was did great things for spoke for and, and acted for a lot of people a lot of people with hiv at that time and still so that, that's coming home. If I can get it to come home, it doesn't all, sometimes it takes harder, longer to get there. That was a character that was definitely coming home. And I understood him from the inside out, but you know, you, you want to get to set going, having done enough work to go, it's me. I am the character's me. I am. It's so clear. That was an incredible, incredible role. Uh, I talked to you at Jared Leto as a friend and, um, He's been on the show and just watching you play that is like incredibly impressive and heartfelt and earnest. And I actually was struck with emotion reading you talking about that, playing that part and that your answer there just brought me a lot of joy again, just that it was going on. Can I give you a great Leto story that, that, that leads into <laughs> a, a larger sort of tool of, uh, of, of process? Please. So, it has to do with that being so much into the subjective, <laughs> meaning not even being conscious uh, of that there's a that there's a you know a goal line or a finish line. So Jared playing Rayon, I don't really know Jared. I know he's got a band. I know he's an actor, but other than that, we show up. I'm Ron, and we cross each other around the around the set on the first day and down there doing hair and makeup. And, you know, I'm pretty much Ron to him. And I'm noticing he's pretty much being Rayon to me. He even started that. I came in my trailer and I'm Jared, you're out there. I don't know if I ever told you this, but your little secret that Rayon was a, a klepto. I know. Cause you stole some of my shit out of my trailer. Like you stole my, you stole like a pack of matches the first day we met. And I think you stole some other things from me. Thank you very much. But anyway, we go through um, 30 days of rehearsing and then shooting for 30 days. And we were around each other every day and met each. We were getting to know each other. Our only interaction was in those scenes as Ron and Rayon. When we wrapped the final night and they went, that's a wrap. And I know for me, my head was down. I was like, okay, guys, I'll see you tomorrow. And they were like, no, that's like a film wrap. There's no more. <laughs> we're done. I went, oh, looked over and I went, Leto, McConaughey. And he goes, McConaughey, Leto, you know, I'm from Shreveport. Oh, I'm from Longview. Oh, really? Da, da, da. That's the first time we met each other. Right there where we wrapped. And it, part. Awesome. It was right when we yelled cut at the, on, the, on the set, when it was a film wrap, is when he and I first shook hands, looked at each other with, in, through different eyes, and... I said, Sal's going with the band and he's, you know, he found out he was raised just east to where I was raised. And then that's when we, that's when we first kind of laughed and the only time, and since we've been each other, you know, we've been each other, but for that, for all of that work, from the time we met to the time we finished, he was Rayon and I was Ron. And that was awesome. How much fun to go that deep and to stay in that character. It's like, you know, we can go play dress up for Halloween on one night a year, but when you get to go do something like that and play a character and being a great story where you like, you know, you're committed to the character and you're seeing the world through their eyes and their, their part of you for that amount of time. Mm. Mm. 
Thank you for sharing that. I will, uh, next time I see him, I will recount that for him. Or maybe he's listening. I like that you call him out. Um, all right. Uh, I want to uh, steer us toward the end of our conversation here. Um, and specifically, so first of all, a very bizarre thing, which is just an absolute honest to God truth. So you're talking about in the book about coming back into LA, listening to LA woman from the doors and hold on one second. I'm listening on vinyl. I'm listening to this on vinyl when I'm reading that section of the book. It was crazy. It was crazy. It was crazy. So that was uh, a beautiful synchronicity. But, you know, again, this is another part. I don't know if that's coming home when you were going to LA. It probably didn't seem like coming home, but I want to I want to try and sort of wrap up the idea of reconciling with so many things because we're all constantly reconciling and you're reckons you're coming back to L.A. And then there's a part of the book where you're reconciling the passing of your father. Mm. And, you know, there's this a, a term that emerges in the book that I have come to know is significant for you. And it's just keep living mm -hmm. it's the name of your foundation. Um, you talked about it in reconciling the passing of your father, have a vision of it. Um, you know, getting back to LA so many times when you've come through the, the drought, the six month drought, there's this, um, it's almost, I don't know if it's a redemption. So I'm wondering if you can help us understand what just keep living means to you, or sorry, just keep living. You intentionally leave the G off if I'm not mistaken. No G on the end of living because life's a verb. Yeah. So my father passes away, uh, actually making love to my mother on Monday morning, has a heart attack. I get that call. Oh, impossible. No, nothing could kill my father. Well, it turns out my mother could. <laughs> <laughs> so he, I rushed back. I just started Days Confused. My very first film I ever started, I was five days into working on it. Um, which I want to bring this up. There is serendipity to me that my dad was alive. He didn't get to see it, but he was alive. His life overlapped me starting something that became more than a hobby that became a career that I have some honor in it. Oh, okay. Cause there were so many times in the past, I was like, man, please give me the skateboard gear. I really want to be a skateboarder. No, nah, I did it for a summer. I quit. You know what I mean? But for him to be alive when I started something that became more than a hobby, yeah. I have honor in it. So he moves on. And I go back, we have the Irish wake, we sit around uh, the late night tears in the kitchen, find out some of those things you, you find out in passing that, you know, the, the messenger was actually different than the message, <laughs> you know, and those things can make you sad. Those things can make you pissed off. But ultimately I, what happened to me is I realized, oh no, that's okay. He, at least he was trying to, he was wanting me to be a little bit better than maybe than, than, than he was. Yeah. And I remember coming back to my family said, look, you got to get back, go back to work. It's what dad would want you to do. You've been here for four days and mind you, the set of days of use said, take as long as you want. But I drove back to from Houston to Austin. Um, and that night we were on the set. I was on the football field scene at the end of days confused and Richard Linklater, who I'd gotten to know a little bit now from working for a few weeks with him. We're walking around the, 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 the stadium and he knew my dad had just moved on. And he's a great listener and he's still a great friend. And he said, uh, we're just talking. He's letting me kind of air it out. And it just kind of came to me. I was like, you know what, man? I go, I think it's about living, man. 
He goes, what do you mean? I go, well, my dad's no longer physically here. He'll never physically be here, but things he taught me, his spirit, the relationship I have with him, the conversations that I've had with him that I can still keep having with him spiritually, I got to keep those alive. Just got to keep living, man. And that planted for me. It came from somewhere else through me. And and I said that and actually threw it out in the scene that night um, in in the movie. And since then, though, um, I've not found anywhere that the just keep living choice was not the best one to have. I've not found anywhere where it didn't apply. Um, You know, it it, it can mean different things to different people in every situation. To the agoraphobe, it may mean, go ahead, walk out to the curb, get the mail. Just keep living, man. Go ahead, take a little step further out there. To the absolute party and extrovert that I've was in high school. It, it just keep living actually meant no, actually, instead of going out and partying Saturday night, let's go over to your buddy Bindler's house and watch a movie. Whoa, really? It, so it can mean different things. And I, I bring it up in the book about dirt roads and autobahns, you know, for someone who's on the, on the, on the autobahn, uh, all their, all their life, the, 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 the road less traveled or the just keep living choice may be to go take the dirt road. Well, if you're the agoraphobic or the person who's on the dirt road all the time, maybe you're, you're just keep living choice your road less travel would be go ahead and go to uh, go with the mail or go to the grocery store or the independent film nerd may need to go check out a blockbuster from time to time just to have a look-see. Well, a blockbuster person may need to go check out an Eisenstein film. You know what I mean? So it's, um, it literally, it means make the life affirming choice. Um, but I'm also a believer in what is that quality of the choice has to come because I do not believe that the, the, the life affirming choice for me means, Oh, what's the quantity, the most amount, the how is the, the best just keep living choice is not necessarily to one who lives the longest. I'm not really numbers and like, Oh, I made it this far, this sort of infatuation that we have with more and longer is better. I don't, I don't quite buy it. I don't purchase it. Um, but what is the, the qualitative choice. What is, and a hint comes out of the, the, the title of the green lights. You know, we, the just keep living choice is not every green light because a lot of green lights out there are battery powered. They'll get you off right now, but they're going to dim and go out in a week. So what are the solar powered green lights we can choose? That's the just keep living choice. The ones that are going to shine on for the rest of our future, be kind to our future self, and maybe hopefully keep shining after we're gone the things we can leave for our kids or for the next generations. That's just keep living. That's keeping things alive. That's there's a way, you know, there's, there's so much of life is, 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 is in living beings or, or even in relationships are impermanent physically, but spiritually they're not. And what are those, yeah, what, what are those lights in our life that we can have that, like I said, are solar powered, that we can leave behind? Not shadows, but rays of rays of light that you go, uh-huh. Those are just, those, those are still living. It's a verb. It's not a noun. Life is a verb. Architecture is a verb. We are in constant architecture and construction every day. We do not reach the ta-da moment. We do not get the spot. We go, I got it figured out. Yippee. Bullshit, you do. So... <laughs> I just keep living choice for me is how can I be personally as a man, as a person, a little bit, maybe can I be a little bit better every day? I think humans are an aspiration individually. 
I think America is an aspiration. We're all chasing yet. And we ain't never getting there. And if we can just go, oh, what's really cool is that we get to keep chasing. We get to get in the race and stay committed to the chase. And that's as good as it gets. Oh, awesome. Because that means it's never over. It's continually alive. It will always live. Just keep living. It's just a fantastic, um, it, it truly is heartfelt and insightful and simple. Those are, you know, goes back to that mastery is when things become simple again. And uh, I want to thank you for taking that uh, time. Thank Camilla for letting you take that time. You come up with this is a fantastic metaphor. Um, we've been talking about life, but of course, have to overtly recommend your book to anyone who's listening or watching. It's really a something it's different than any memoir I've ever read. And I want to give you uh, artist to artist, just a debt of gratitude for writing. And I think it's going to affect a lot of people. Well, it's been, it's been a stunner. The, the very last question is you started this journey off by telling your father that you didn't want to be a lawyer. And right now there are so many people who are doing something they won't put on this planet to do and they're doing it for someone else. And so leave, leave listeners and watchers with a bit of advice on how to, how to take that step that they now they know they should be taking, but they're not. Okay. Well, first off, I want to preface this with saying, look, I think if everybody did only what they love to do, the unemployment rate would be sky high. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> okay. But as far as finding those things that are, are, that we do love to do. And I do believe you can learn to love something. You can be good at something and actually learn to love it because the act of being good at something and doing it and becoming better, we can learn to love that I have in certain aspects of my life. But as far as I wanted to be a lawyer, but no, I wasn't sleeping with that, chase my bliss and who was more truly myself and became a storyteller and doing what I'm doing today. If we can, early on, the earlier we can, say, we can define and understand our innate abilities, we can define those. Those aren't easy to define, but we can define our innate ability. Then say, okay, do I have a means to educate and work my back, my tail off to, to, to evolve that innate ability? And it, and can it be something in this capitalist society that I can supply that will be in demand because I need to pay my rent? That's the honey hole. If you can the biology and giddy up, if you can match your innate abilities with something you're willing and have the opportunity to work for, to create a product, whether it's a, a piece of matter or ourselves or a spoken word that is in demand. If you want to make a living doing it, that's the spot. Spoken. Thanks again so much for being on the show, man. I really appreciate your time and congratulations. Uh, storied career, um, in particular, your, your most recent piece of art, uh, your book, Green Lights. Um, thanks for being on the show, but got, I got a lot more I want to talk to you about. We'll, we'll have to take we'll it. We'll do it again. Uh, and we'll play that. We'll play that. It was awesome. Thanks so much again for being on the show. For everyone who's listening and watching, uh, stay tuned for another episode. Please uh, give a shout out to Matthew out on social. Let him know that you heard the show. Uh, write reviews. Do what you can to support him. He's uh, obviously needs no introduction, but I'm sure if uh, his book continued to do well, it would make him 
uh, happy. And I know it would bring a lot of joy and insight to so many people who read it. So let's help them spread the word and signing off till uh, the next time. Again, thanks again, Matthew, for being on the show. Appreciate it, bud. Absolutely. Enjoy it, Chase. Till next. Hey, that was an awesome episode. But before you bounce, just I got three quick thoughts. First, thank you for being in this community. It gives me so much juice. I can't even tell you so much juice that when I hit publish and this show goes out into the ether, that there's an amazing community of like-minded people just like you consuming and sharing the show. So thank you. Second, it would be huge. It would mean the world to me if you left a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Now, we're regularly featured at the top slot there on Apple Podcast page and others in Spotify, etc. And that's because of your reviews. So if you've ever wanted to uh, lend a hand or you got some value from me in the past and you want to pay it forward, that would be amazing. And then lastly, it would also mean the world to me if you shared the content that you get here. Whether it's a screenshot or a photo of where you're listening, anything via Instagram stories, um, or any other social feeds tagging me and the guests. Now, I repost this content and your comments all the time, so I would love to share your shout-outs in my feed, too. Um, not only do these shout-outs, uh, are, are they good for you and me, but they also help us book amazing guests because they see the reach that you cultivate. This is a way for you to help contribute to the show. So, again... I want to say thanks. I'm just at Chase Jarvis. You can use at Creative Live as well. And the guests are easy to track down because they are, well, they're usually quite well-known people. Um, but again, thank you so much for listening. I'm looking forward to being in your ears again, hopefully tomorrow.